You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll explore how the Old Testament covenants point towards God's loving sacrifice of his own son for our salvation. I want you to meet me where we have been throughout this entire series, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse number 6. We've been teaching a series for the sake of our guests to let me level set with you. We've been teaching a series uh, based on the title of my new book, Desired by God, um, and just been sharing a part of section one of that book because I have been so burdened with the weight of people not really knowing the heart of God. And a lot of it is because we have had this incorrect teaching, this mixture, a little of tradition, a little of truth. It's been a number of things that I think uh, has kept us from really, really understanding the heart of the Father. And so what I have intended to do through this series is to introduce the heart of God to you by taking these 66 books and helping you to understand the heart of God in a very simple way through the covenants that God made with man. And that's where we are with Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 6. This is the key verse that we've been looking at every week. And uh, let me say this as we go to Hebrews 8 and 6. Today we're going to deal with how you are desired by God. We have dealt with how Noah is desired by God. Abraham is desired by God. The nation of Israel through Moses is desired by God. Last week we dealt with how David was desired by God. But today and even on next week as we close this series, we're going to talk about how you are desired by God. So let's go back to Hebrews 8 and 6 and then stay in Hebrews because we're going to read a little bit more today. It says this, but in fact, the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. This verse has been the key verse of this entire series because... It tells us really two important things, and this is all by way of review. It tells us, first of all, that the way we relate to God through Jesus Christ is better based on a better covenant and better promises, but it is better than the way that man historically has connected with God through Jesus Christ. Now, in order for you to really understand the gravity of that, then this is the second part that this verse is teaching us. In order to really understand why we relate to God and connect to God in a better way now through Jesus, you have to go back and understand how humanity connected with God through ancient biblical history. That's what all of this notion of the covenants are about when it says that Uh, The the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. He's saying that we have a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ that's better than the covenants that God made with man in the past prior to Jesus. And that's why we've been looking at these covenants because in, in the ancient world, in the Bible days, God would reveal himself and connect with man by virtue of the covenants that he had entered into with them at that time. One of the things that I've been saying every week that I want to repeat again is that part of the reason that there's a lot of misunderstanding um, about who God really is is because a lot of times people will, will read the Old Testament in particular and not understand the behavior and the actions and even the decisions of God Because what they don't understand is that God behaved in conjunction with the covenants that he was with or entered into with man at that time. The analogy that I've been giving throughout this series is that marriage, for an example, is a covenant. And the moment I got married, my behavior changed. There there were ways that I I had to now behave because I was married that I didn't have to behave uh, like when I was single. And so the moment I entered into that covenant with my wife, my behavior lined up with the covenant. And it's the same thing with God. God entered into critical covenants with mankind and, and he behaved. He revealed himself and his love for us by virtue of those covenants. Throughout the entire Bible, 
that takes us up to this present age. God entered into five of those covenants. And what I've been sharing with you throughout this series is that there were three kinds of covenants that God entered into with man. The first kind of covenant, you know it by now, is a grant covenant. A grant covenant is when the greater party and the lesser party, the greater party is God, the lesser party is man, enter into a covenant, and the greater party takes on all of the obligations. The only thing that the lesser party has to do is trust that God, the greater party, is going to fulfill all of the obligations. We saw a grant covenant with Noah. We saw a grant covenant with Abraham. But then we also saw in Genesis 19 that God shows up on Mount Sinai and he offers a grant covenant to, to the nation of Israel. And because of fear, they reject a grant covenant. They tell Moses because they were afraid. This is why fear will mess your life up. They were so scared that they tell Moses, you go on top of the mountain. You tell us whatever God says and we'll do it. So in exchange... For a grant covenant in exchange for a relationship that God really wanted that he had with Noah and that he had with Abraham, they want rules. This is where rules come into play. And so they don't get a grant covenant because they reject it. Instead, they get something called a kinship covenant. A kinship covenant is when two parties come together and they agree that these are the rules that are going to basically govern how we relate to one another. A kinship covenant is not about relationships, it's more about rules, and those rules are evenly divided among both parties. I share with you in the series that this is what the Ten Commandments was all about. The Ten Commandments were a kinship covenant ceremony. There were two tablets, but Exodus 32 makes it very clear that they were written on front and back. And so one tablet written on front and back was God's copy. The other tablet written on front and back was the nation of Israel's copy. This was an old school way of having a carbon copy because both tablets illustrated these are the rules that we are going to abide by in our covenant relationship. We know that those rules were put in the Ark of the Covenant, and we even know that before Moses got down from Mount Sinai, the children of Israel had already started breaking those rules. So 40 years later, a kinship covenant is not good enough because for 40 years, the children of Israel break every rule that they asked for. So then when Joshua comes to power, the covenant is downgraded. And it goes from that of a kinship covenant to that of a vassal covenant. A vassal covenant is the third and final ancient covenantal agreement. And a vassal is a person who receives protection and provision in return for them following the rules. And so once again, under Joshua, more rules have been added. I shared with you on last week that, that the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus in particular have led people, probably more books, I mean, more people have been led to believe incorrectly about God through the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus than any other book in the Bible because they read it and they see law after law after law after law after law. I shared with you even on last week that many atheists, that in their central argument about why they don't believe God, they always point to God as pictured through either verses after Exodus 19, Leviticus, or Deuteronomy. But you know by now that that's not the heart of God. That, that they got there, the nation of Israel got there because they reject, they reject the grant covenant, asked for kinship. They didn't do that well. And then we see that they, they are downgraded to a vassal and they didn't do that well. But then we looked at on last week that interestingly enough, in the midst of a vassal covenant era, what everybody else was held to a vassal covenant, God has a special agreement with David. God rolls back a vassal covenant and gives David the same thing he gave to Noah, the same thing he gives to Abraham as a grant covenant. I went through all of that painstakingly week after week after week because I was building towards where we are today and where we're going to be next Sunday. And that's Jesus. So now pick me back up in Hebrews chapter 8, but we're going to continue to read in verse number 7. And it says this. 
For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, now we got to ask the question, well, what covenant is God talking about? He explains in just a second. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a what? New covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. Here it is. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. So we know he's not talking about Abraham. We know he's not talking about Noah. He's referring to the covenant that he made with Moses and the children of Israel. So we know that's not a grant covenant. We know that God is referring to the kinship covenant and the vassal covenant. Are you still with me? He says, I'm going to make a new covenant, but this new covenant is not going to be like the covenant that they lived under, under Moses and Joshua. It's going to be different. He goes on and says, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'm going to put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new... He has made the first one, what? That's what I want you to see. By the first one, he's not talking about the covenant with Abraham or Noah. We've already established this. By the first one, he's talking about what happened unto Moses and Joshua. And he says, by calling this covenant new, the first one is obsolete. I want you to get this because one of the biggest challenges right now is that many people, particularly in the body of Christ, particularly uh, those who maybe have grown up in a very traditional environment, we've got one foot in the new covenant, which is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But we got another foot in that covenant that God established with Moses and with Joshua and the nation of Israel. So the problem as it relates to us being able to adequately understand the heart of God and even being able to teach somebody or share our faith with them is that in many ways we're schizophrenic. Because we, we talk about Jesus, but then we make people adhere to all of these laws. But he says the mere fact that he's establishing a new one makes the first one obsolete. Obsolete, no more. So now we get to Jesus because Hebrews is pointing to this new covenant that's coming. Where is it? It's in Jesus. So then go to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The first book in the New Testament. New Testament. New covenant. New Testament. New covenant. It's Jesus. God only entered into five covenants with man. Some of all 66 books by understanding these five covenants. I'm teaching them to you. First one was Noah. Second one was Abraham. Third was, was Moses and the Joshua uh, vassal is underneath that. Fourth is David. Fifth is Jesus. New covenant. That's what we live under right now. So then... What is this Jesus thing all about, Pastor, if, if you're telling me that sometimes we're schizophrenic and we got one foot in the new and another in the Mosaic old covenant? Well, I'm glad you asked because what does the first book of the New Testament, the first verse, what does it say? It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The son of? Stop right there. What kind of covenant did God have with Abraham? Not a trick question. Grant covenant. What kind of covenant did God have with David? Grant covenant. Notice what's missing. 
So the very first verse of the very first book of the New Testament that says, this is what Jesus is all about. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. Now I know to some of you, you're saying, but, but what does this mean? Well, first of all, if you're going to understand properly the ministry of Jesus and the new covenant, the first thing that the New Testament is saying in Matthew 1 and 1 is that it literally he, Jesus, is the fulfillment. He's the son of David. He is the son of, he's the son of Abraham. So Jesus and his ministry is the culmination. It, it is the fulfillment of the covenant with David and the covenant with Abraham, both of which we know were grant covenants. But let me unpack this a little bit more. So when the Bible says that Jesus is the son of David, what this means, number one, is that he is sovereign. What it means, number one, is that he is sovereign. That's what it means to be the son of David. What do you mean he's sovereign? When, when we talk about sovereign, sovereign means supreme ruler. Sovereign means ultimate leader. Sovereign means the crowned head. That he is sovereign. That he is the ultimate authority. That there is no one greater. That he is literally Lord of all. That's what the word sovereign means. Now, some of you are wondering, well, how do you get all of that out of David? Because last week you were telling us about how David was flawed, but God made a covenant with him. Well, part of the challenge last week was I was teaching and God was moving. The glory of God, you know, hit many of our services. And, and so I couldn't even finish the message on last Sunday. And I didn't get a chance to show you the exact place where God makes the covenant with David. But I'm going to show you right now, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation to try to preach this, teach this. I'm just going to read it to you, and I want to point out some really important things. But you can go back, you can look at 2 Samuel 7, and you can review it on your own. But it's 2 Samuel 7 where God literally enters into a covenant with David. We saw where he entered into covenant with Noah. We saw where he entered into covenant with Abraham. We saw where the children of Israel rejected the grand covenant in Exodus 19. We see, we saw rather, the covenant that he ultimately enters into. I showed you all of that in weeks prior. But last week, I didn't get a chance to get to 2 Samuel 7. So I'm going to read this really quickly. Verse number 8 says this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you have gone. And I've cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great. Like all of like the names of the greatest men on the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And then in verse 16, he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. I read that really quickly, but here's what you need to know. When God makes a covenant with David, God promises four things. In that covenant, God promises four things. God says, number one, I'm going to make your name great. You don't have to try to make your name great. I'm going to do it. Same thing God says to Abraham. But he says to David, number one, I'm going to make your name great. He says, number two, I'm going to give you rest from all of your enemies. Okay? He says, number three, I'm going to establish a house for you. And then here's the fourth most important piece. He says, and your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Those are the four things that God promises to David when he makes a covenant with him. And the one I really want you to key in on is the last promise when he says your house and your kingdom will endure forever. Because when God makes this promise to David, he is not just talking about David's immediate ancestors, the first of which we know is Solomon. He's also talking about Jesus. He says, one translation says, and his kingdom will have no end. That I will establish your house and your kingdom forever. 
So then you open up Matthew 1 and 1, and it says, well, first of all, you got to understand that Jesus is the son of David, meaning he's sovereign, he's supreme ruler, meaning that, that he is the fulfillment of the promise God made to David, that you have an ancestor coming, and his kingdom will have no end. That, 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 that he will be on the throne forever. So let me give this uh, some context. So then you go to Luke 18, and there's a story about a man named Blind Bartimaeus. And it says in Luke 18, verse 35, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, well, what was happening? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Nazareth, we know, is where he was from. In terms of his physical birth, are you following me? So blind Bartimaeus is sitting by the roadside. There's a commotion. He's like, what is all of this? He can't physically see, but he can hear. How shall they hear? Uh, He says, I hear some commotion. They said, oh, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He called out, Jesus, son of, not of Nazareth. They tell him, Jesus, son of Nazareth, is coming by. He says, oh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then those who led the way rebuked him. Shh, be quiet. Shh, shh. Stop making all that noise. But he shouted all the more. What did he shout? Son of David. Have mercy on me. Jesus stopped. And it says he ordered the man brought to him. And when he came near to Jesus, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And Lord, I want to see, he replied. And Jesus said to him, well, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Why did Jesus say your faith has made you whole? Because of what he said. He said, Jesus, son of David, not son of Nazareth. Nazareth is where he was from. Son of David is a statement about who he is. Because do you remember what I already taught you? God said, David, you're going to have an ancestor who will always sit on the throne. He's sovereign. So blind Bartimaeus impacts Jesus to the point that he stops and says, man, your faith has made you well. What did blind Bartimaeus have faith in? He said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. God promised David that he'd have an ancestor whose kingdom would never end. So that means I know who you are, Jesus. You are sovereign. You're in control, which means you're in control over my blindness. You're on the throne. There is nothing bigger and better than you. So that means you can handle blindness. You can handle any ailment because you're the son of David. What does this mean? It means that he's sovereign. He's in control. There's nothing that he cannot handle. If he can handle blindness, he can handle cancer. If he can handle cancer, he can handle diabetes. If he can handle diabetes, he can handle unemployment. If he can handle unemployment, he can, he can handle your promotion and getting your certifications and opening the door that you're pursuing because he is sovereign. Because he's son of David. He's on the throne. This is why I know I have to teach this because many of us don't understand this. Do you remember? Do you remember when when Jesus gets to the house of Mary and Martha? And they're mad because he didn't shut the revival down and get to Lazarus when Lazarus was sick. And they have an attitude and they say, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. Can can I just pause here to to tell you something I was reflecting on and and had a couple couple of conversations with with some of our leaders after the first service. It's interesting that blind Bartimaeus couldn't physically see, but he had the faith to understand who Jesus was. Yet Mary and Martha were were close to Jesus, hung out with Jesus the whole time, and they didn't know who he was. Because they get an attitude thinking, well, if you would have been here, if you would have come earlier, then my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, no, you'll see your brother again. And then they give him like a religious answer. Oh, well, you know, we'll see him in the general resurrection. He said, no, 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 you don't know who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. 
What is he saying? You don't understand that, that just like I am sovereign over blindness, I'm sovereign over time. That there's no such thing as me being late. Because what you think is late is on time. I am in control of time. I can restore the years that the locusts have taken from you. I can make the sun stand still and give you victory if that's what I need to do. He says, I'm, uh, well, if you, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. Just listen, shut it down. Show me where you laid him. Because I'm sovereign over time. Jesus is saying, I'm even sovereign over death. Lazarus, come here. Coming out with his grave clothes. Y'all take them clothes, loose him, and let him go. Because he's sovereign. Isn't it interesting? The blind Bartimaeus is physically blind, but he's got the faith to say son of David. Mary and Martha have to be introduced to the son of David. They have an attitude. Isn't it interesting sometimes that there are people who haven't been around God at all, but their faith is higher than the folk who've been going to church every single Sunday? Because he's sovereign. He's the son of David. I don't know that I have time to even take you to Ephesians chapter 1. Do y'all want this or you want me to just move on? Okay. Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit longer. Is it okay? I'll take a little extra time this morning. I want you to see this. Ephesians chapter 1. And if nobody gets it, I know that the, our, our, our sons and daughters of the house, our pastors and our, our ministers, y'all, y'all need this. It, Paul is trying to teach in the exact same way. So what I'm teaching you, it is not new, but this issue of really understanding the heart of the Father, who he is, is, is significant. So much so that this is primarily the bulk of Paul's ministry. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is why I'm teaching this series, because I really want you to know, I want your, the eyes of your heart to, to really be open. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power. Incomparably. means you cannot compare his power to anything else. His power is greater, and his incomparably great power for us who what? We're going to come back to that in a second. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand, where? In heavenly realms. Far above some rule. I just wanted to make sure you were still up. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. Not only in the present age, but also in the one that is to come. And God placed... Something, oh, I'm sorry. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, the church, which is his body, fullness of him who fills everything in every way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the rule of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him where? In heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So let me, I'm teaching. This is part of the reason why you don't hear me teaching a whole bunch about the devil. The enemy is real. I'm not saying he's not real. Spiritual warfare is real. One of the greatest ways that we engage in spiritual warfare is through prayer. I'm not suggesting that that is not real. But I am teaching you that often when I hear people who talk more about the enemy than about God and who they are in Christ, 
it is clear that they don't know who God is and how great he is. Because it says that God raised Jesus up, seated him at his right hand, and that he is above all. And not only when I hear people talking about the devil, the devil, the devil, pray for me, Pastor, the devil, he's this, he's this, he's this, he's this. It tells me, number one, that they don't know who Christ is. But it also tells me that they don't know who they are. Because it says that not only did he raise Christ up, and he is far above all issues. It also says that when we are in Christ, we are seated with him. So if he is on the throne and the earth is his footstool and you're seated with him. People say, Pastor, I need you to pray for me because, because, because the devil, he's, he's messing with my mind. My question is, how did he get up so high? He doesn't have the power to get up that high, which means you must have come down. Look at your neighbor, tell him, stop playing in the dirt. Stop playing in the dirt. Take up your rightful seat. You don't speak like you're playing in the dirt. You speak like you are seated with authority. I am the head and not the tail. Hallelujah. I want, I want you to get this. So I'm not rushing. Pastor Aaron, pray for me. Pray for me. He's after my marriage. Well, no, 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 no. At the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. At the name of every tongue must confess. Pray for me. I need somebody to come in my house and, 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 and to kick the demonic spirits out of my house. No, you kick the demonic spirits out your house. You ought to be able to walk through your house and say, in the name of Jesus, devil, you got no place up in here. In the, the blood of Jesus is against you. Jesus. Mm, mm. Do you, do you hear what I'm trying to teach you? Because he is sovereign. He's sovereign. Because he's son of David. This is, just, this is just Matthew 1 and 1. He's sovereign, son of David. Number two. Man, I'm out of time already. All right. But, but wait a minute. He is, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. He's the son of David. But he's the son of Abraham. Now, what kind of covenant did David have? What kind of covenant did David get? What kind of covenant did Abraham get? Now, let me show this to you. What do you mean he's the son of Abraham? In Genesis chapter 22, which is a familiar passage, it's, it's, it's packed full of not only relevance for us today and even during Abraham's day. But here's what you must understand. When God is dealing with Abraham in Genesis 22... He is not just dealing exclusively with Abraham and Isaac. God is also talking about Jesus Christ. This is why in Genesis 2, 22 and verse 2, he, he then said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, wait a minute. Abraham actually had two sons. Isaac is the son of promise, yes, but he actually had two sons. A part of what God is talking about is he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to give you a glimpse at what I'm going to do thousands of years later. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain. I will show you. That's verse number two. What you must understand is that the exact same mountain called Moriah in the Old Testament where Abraham and Isaac go up for the sacrifice is the same mountain thousands of years later where Jesus is crucified. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 22, it's called Moriah. In the New Testament, it's called Calvary. Drop down to verse 6 of Genesis 22. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, and where did he place the wood? He placed it on Isaac. Isaac carried the wood. Just like Jesus carried the cross. You're getting it. Woo! 
And it says, and he himself carried the fire and the knife, and the two of them went on together. And Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, he said, Dad, I'm just taking inventory. We got the wood, check. We got the fire, check. We got the knife, check. But where is the lamb? Abraham said, well, God himself will provide the lamb. The lamb of God. Jesus was slain before the foundations of the earth because God himself will provide the lamb. So, so when it says in Matthew 1 and 1 that, that he is the son of David, it means he's sovereign. When it says that he is the son of Abraham, number two, it means he's our ultimate sacrifice because what God is showing Abraham all the way back in Genesis 22 is that I'm going to provide the real sacrifice and his name is Jesus. Are you following me? So, Isaac was just an Old Testament picture of what God was going to do thousands of years later through Jesus. So then, we, we know, we know the Abraham Grant Covenant, we know that for nearly 3,000 years, 2,847 years to be exact, that's the time that elapses between Abraham, Genesis 12, and Exodus 19 when the nation of Israel reject a Grant Covenant and, and, and ask for rules. But even in the rules that God sets up, God is so awesome that even the rules point to Jesus. So one of the rules were, well, now you got to set up the tabernacle. And, and, and you cannot approach me. My, my glory is going to be in the tabernacle, but you cannot approach me without a sacrifice. And so when you come to the outer court, you got to bring turtle doves, you got to bring lambs and goats because there has to be a blood offering because it is by the shedding of blood that there is the remission of sins. I know I'm, I told y'all you may not get all of it right now. So on the outer court, they're, they're killing. It's just bloody. They go to the brazen labor, they wash, it symbolizes baptism. They go into the inner court that symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. But then when the, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, and they could only go in there one time uh, a year, though on the Day of Atonement, they would have to take the blood of a lamb, and they'd have to sprinkle the blood on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the mercy seat. Why? Because the glory of the Lord was hovering uh, between the cherubim, and as God looked down, what is he looking at? He's looking at the Ten Commandments that are inside of the Ark. He's looking at the laws that they asked for that they had not kept. And so instead of raining down judgment, when he looked down and saw the blood covering the law... He would give mercy instead of judgment. But even in that rule about the lamb, the blood of the lamb being sprinkled, it was pointing to Jesus. So now you got that? You got that? All right. So pick me up. Let's go, let's go to Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews 10. I'm, I'm hurrying up. In verse number one, I want to read this. It says that the law, we know when the law came into existence. When they ask for rules in that relationship, the law is only a shadow of the things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated in endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. What does that mean? It means, yes, yes, they would sacrifice blood, the blood of goats. I mean, they sacrifice goats and stuff and blood and lambs and all of that. Um, but, but the writer of Hebrews is saying, but even though they did that, it, it couldn't make them perfect. They did it year after year after year, but that wasn't enough. And all it did was point to something that was coming that's greater. It says it, it, was, it was insufficient to make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, here we go. He said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. But a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. 
Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He sets aside the need to kill all of the animals and to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. He sets all of that aside to establish the second. What is the second? He is the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. And it says, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. I told you you might not get it, but when you get it, you'll understand why you really ought to learn how to give God praise for Jesus. Hallelujah. He's, he's, he's literally saying that there is a plumb line. Listen to me. There is, there is a plumb line that runs from Calvary all the way into eternity. And it is, it's, it's, like the, it's like the scarlet thread that Rahab hung from her window. So that, so that when they came in to, 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 to ransack Jericho, they would see that, that bloodline. And, and they'd recognize that everybody connected to her needs to be spared. Do, do you hear what I'm saying? There, there is a line that is flowing uh, from, from literally the shed blood of Calvary. It is a bloodline that is running from the cross into eternity. Which means that, that the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary, please get this. It takes care of your sins, past, present, and future. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. Once and for all. Now, 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 here's why you got to get this. Because sometimes we bandy this stuff around about, well, are, well he, can he forgive that? Well, no, he can forgive that, but I don't know about that. Or, or people say, but you just don't know what I've done. So, when I, so you know, I, I've done some stuff that, that, that I know is beyond forgivable. I, I, st I haven't found that in here. I haven't found it. Well, you just don't know my past. Well, but I do know that the blood from Calvary that is flowing. Unless you were, were born before Jesus, that means that it takes care of, of your sins in the past, in the present, and in the future. I don't have time to unpack this, but I do need to say it. It's in the death of Jesus that he provided forgiveness. Now we know we serve a risen savior. But here's the point. If he never got up. Your sins and my sins would still be forgiven. He died to forgive us. He got up. To empower us to live a new life. In his death he forgave us. But in his resurrection he gave us the power. To live free. And the new life. The new creation that we're called to be. He gives us the power to live. Are you following me? Because he's sovereign number one. And because he is the ultimate sacrifice number two. He's sovereign son of David. He's the ultimate sacrifice son of Abraham. So now let me close by giving you some salvation truths. I want to show you the salvation scripture. That many of you probably know or quoted Romans 10 and 9. And I want you to now understand it in light of everything that I've been teaching you. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is, what does Lord mean? He's head of all. He's sovereign. That points back to the son of David. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he's, he's Lord. That means he's sovereign of all. He's, he's over all. 
He's not just Lord over your salvation. He's Lord over cancer. He's not just Lord over your salvation. He's Lord of your life. He's Lord over the issues that arise in your life. He's Lord. Notice, this is how you're saved. If you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that what? God raised him from the dead. Raised from the dead. The lamb that was slain. The perfect sacrifice. This points back to him being the son of Abraham. So the heart of the gospel, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, the heart of the gospel is about Jesus being the fulfillment of the covenant of David and the covenant of Abraham. Now let me ask you again, what kind of covenant did God make with David? Grant covenant. What kind of covenant did God make with Abraham? Grant covenant. How are we saved? If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. How are we saved? Are we saved because of what we do? We're saved because of what we believe. Grant covenant. We're, we're back. We, we saw it with Noah. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it with David. We're right back. God, God says, I got you. The greater party God says, I take on all of the obligations. How are we saved? Grant covenant. God says, I got you. You don't have to jump through hoops. I got you. You don't have to perform. I got you. Everything you need to be saved, I got, was on my son, Jesus. He took care of all of it. So, so this is why we can sing, he's the way maker. Because listen to, you, to me, I want you to understand the love of God. Do, do, you, do you have to jump through hoops for God to be a way maker? No, he loves you too much for that. God says, I got you. Do you have to perform for him to be a way maker and a miracle worker? God says, no, I love you too much. I got you. I got you. Do, do, you have to, do you have to cross every T and dot every I for him to show up and show out in your life? God says, no, I got you. All, all you got to do is believe in me. All you got to do is trust me. Open your heart to me. Accept me. Receive me as Lord. And I got you. I think I, messed, I left some of you when I talked about we don't have to do anything. So let me go back and, pick, and, let me go back and get you. And then next week, I'm going to really put it in perspective as we close this series. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved, all right, through faith. How was Abraham counted righteous? Through faith. How was Noah considered righteous? Through faith. For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a gift, not of works. So nobody can boast. John 6, the people come to Jesus and says, what do we have to do to do the works of God? In John 6 and 29, he says, it's really simple. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Grant covenant. I, I took all those weeks because I knew we were coming all the way back around. I wanted you to see grant covenant with Noah. That's what God originally intended. I wanted you to see grant covenant with Abraham. That's what God originally intended. I wanted you to see that God really wanted this for the children of Israel. They reject it, and then we descend into a, a kinship and a vassal. But then even God returns to a grant with David, and we are right back with a grant covenant with Jesus Christ. Do you hear me? God says, I got you. That's how you're saved. That's how you connect with me. It is not those who are perfect. It is not those who cross every T and dot every I. It is not what you wear. It is not you can't put makeup on and you can't, your dress got to be a certain length. Oh, well, no, you can't do this. You can do this, but you can't do that. Well, now, you can be saved, brother, because I understand your sin, but you can't be saved because I don't understand yours. Wait, no, 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 that's, that's not here.
God says, how are we saved? By grace through faith. Grant covenant. If you open your heart and receive me, if you believe me by faith, you shall be saved. I'm going to conclude by reading something, and I want you to just follow along with me. And my prayer is that Holy Spirit will turn the light bulbs on, and I'm going to, I'm going to end with this. Part of why I want you to get this and part of why I know that this is desperately what the Lord is saying right now to the church is because one of our biggest hurdles to sharing the gospel, the gospel is good news. And there are people who desperately need good news. There are people in the world who desperately need to know that they're forgiven. But part of the reason that there is a deficit in the church sharing the gospel is because we've taken the gospel and we wrapped it in all of these laws. So we go preaching, Jesus, he loves you, but then we put all of these burdens on people. He loves you, but you can't dress that way. You can't look that way. You can't say that. Or no, you dressed that way. Or no, you did that. Well, no, I don't know about you. You're disqualified. That's not the gospel. The pure, unadulterated gospel is that God loved you so much that despite what you did and every mistake you made, he said, I cannot stand for us to have to relate to each other by all these laws because you ain't going to keep all of them no way. So I'm going to send my son to you. And if you believe in him, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, here's the question, is there anything excluded in the whosoever? I, I'm, I'm just still trying to figure this out. Are there groups of people that didn't make it into the whosoever? That whosoever believed on him shall have an eternal life. I'm going to read something to you. And I want you to just follow along with me on the screen. I told you that the Apostle Paul, his ministry was pretty much really all about this main message that I've been sharing with you. So I want you to meet me in Galatians chapter 3. I'm just going to read this. And I want to explain it, but I don't have a whole bunch of time. I just, I just want you to hear this and follow along with me. Now, I'll, let me apologize to those of you who like politically correct preaching because Paul wasn't politically correct. Paul was straight to the point. So Paul opens up and he gets right to it. You foolish Galatians. How would y'all like it if that's how I preached? <laughs> People like. <might. laughs> Paul, but let me tell you why he's so straight to the point. Paul says, you foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. He says, I would just like to learn one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? He says, how did you receive Holy Spirit? Did you have to jump through every hoop to receive Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. He says, you believe, you believe and that's how you receive Holy Spirit. He says in verse 3, so are you so foolish? There that word is again. After beginning with the Spirit... Are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? How did you make the decision to give your life to Jesus? The Bible says that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except Holy Spirit draw him. Paul is saying now you, you gave your life to Jesus by virtue of the Spirit. So why are you now trying to live according to all of these laws? He says, have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? How do even miracles happen? Miracles don't happen because you cross every T and dot every I. How do miracles happen? Miracles happen because we believe. This is why Jesus, when he would perform a miracle, he would often say, do you believe that I can do this? He would say, your faith has made you whole. Yes, sir. See, you could be sitting on the same road with somebody you love, and your breakthrough could be different from theirs because you come in with a childlike faith that says, God, I believe you. And they're sitting on the row, and they're cynical because they haven't processed through their hurt or because they're still, uh, I mean, just all of this junk in their heads about all these laws that they got to adhere to. And they get, you, you get the breakthrough, they don't. 
And I know what that feels like. I remember years ago, I'm, I'm, I'm going to finish really quickly, but I remember years ago, I was serving a local church in Atlanta. And I was, man, I was a babe in, in, in faith. I was a babe in ministry. And I remember that I saw the power of God and I saw miracles and signs and wonders break out in that church unlike I'd ever seen before. But I had the audacity to be mad with God. Because some of the leaders in that church still had failures and foibles and issues that they were still working through. And I said, often in my prayer and even in my journal, God, how could you use them? How could you, how could you give them the power to lay hands on somebody and they, rec they recover? When, 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 when I see behind the veil, I see. And, and I got mad and said, you shouldn't be using them, God. You ought to be using me. Listen to me. Because I'm living for you. I'm doing everything right. I'm crossing every T and dotting every I. I haven't gone here. I haven't done. I know you, none of y'all talk to the Lord like that. But I did. I haven't done that. You saw them doing that. I haven't done that. I've never done that, God. I didn't go here. When, 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 when people talk to me any kind of way, even though I wanted to give them a piece of my mind, I still smile. I didn't handle it that way, God. But look at how they're handling it. And you have the audacity to use them and not use me. I didn't get it then, but I understand it now. I was trying to get God to move by virtue of works. Miracles don't happen because of works. Miracles happen because you believe the word. And I'm teaching to some of you this morning, and that's simply what you need to do. It's not that hard. You just need to believe. God, I trust you. I trust you for my marriage. I trust you. I believe. I believe, God, you are sovereign. This problem that I'm facing is not too big for you. It's nothing for you. You're sovereign. I believe. I believe, God, and I have an expectation that I will see the salvation of the Lord in, in, my, in my children's life. I will see you move. I, I will see it. Verse 6, Paul says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have what? Are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see how God jumped over the law? He's pointing all the way back to Genesis 15. And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He goes on and says in verse 10, all who rely on observing the law under a curse, for it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. He says, you're going to be under judgment because you can't do everything in the law. But he goes on and says, the law is not based on faith, verse 12. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. How did God get us out of being bound to the law? Jesus took all of that on us. The penalty for every law we didn't fulfill. The judgment for all of the laws that we had broken. Jesus says, I'll take it on myself, Dad. So that they're no longer bound by the law, but that they connect with you by virtue of faith clearly verse 11 no one is justified before God by the law why because the righteous will live by what the law is not based on faith on the contrary the man who does these things will live by them I read this a moment ago but I want to read it again Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written curses anybody who hung on the tree he redeemed us not just for us to be saved and to go to heaven and spend eternity with God. That's great when you die, but what about when you live? He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's me and you, through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Everything that God promised Abraham belongs to you how do you receive it by faith can I read a little bit more before I close
He says, brothers, let us take it as an example everyday life. Just as nobody can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is with this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. This is what we mean when we say that the promises of Christ are yes and amen. Every promise that God made to Abraham, every promise in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, if you are in Christ, it is in him we live, in him we move, in him we have our being. Every promise is yes in him. Do you hear me? What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later. That's the amount of time the children of Israel were in slavery and the amount of time combined that it took for them to get out of Egypt to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. For 430 years, that law was introduced, but it does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Translation, just because we took a detour because of what happened in Exodus 19, it does not set aside what God promised in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. Verse 18, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God in his grace gave it to who? Through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions. Unto the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. We know that was Moses. However, it does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Should we hold people to the law? Or should we hold people to the promise of God? The law, Paul said, absolutely not, does not oppose the promises of God. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would have certainly come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. How do you come out of sin? How do you live a victorious life? His name is Jesus. You believe on him. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified, how? By faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God. Through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you who've been baptized into Christ have put on, have clothed yourselves with Christ. And he says, there are no limits to this. There is therefore now no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free, no male, no female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, here it is, then you're Abraham's seed and you're heirs according to the promise. There's some things that God promised you. You're like, what, what are you talking about? He promised it to your heir. I mean, you're an heir because he promised it to Abraham. So everything he promised belongs to you. You're an heir. You do know what an heir means. It means somebody in your family was wealthy and they left you something. But you know, if you got a, a wealthy uncle that dies, you got to claim what belongs to you. You know how do you do that? There's going to be an attorney that reaches out to you. And, and the attorney is going to say, uh, your uncle passed. And we want you, he named you in his last will and the new testament. He, he named you. He said, I, I left you something that's got some, got some stuff for you. And it's in his last will and testament. And so we want you to come because we're going to read the last will and testament that will specify everything that belongs to you. But now when you read it, you got to claim it. How do you claim it? By faith. By faith, I claim healing belongs to me. By faith, I claim peace belongs to me. By faith, I claim promotion belongs to me. By faith, I claim breakthrough belongs to me. By faith, I claim that my children will be well. It belongs to me. By faith, I claim 
that the devil won't have the last say because victory belongs to me. By faith, I am who God says I am. I can have what he says I can have and, and I, can, I can do what he says I can do. This may be only for a few of you that have the faith to reach up and grab it. But when I learned who I am in Jesus, my life went to another level. Because by faith I began to claim it. That's how much God loves you. That's how much he loves you. That it all belongs to you. By faith. By faith. By faith. I don't know I'm going to get over this fast. I do. By faith. I don't know what I'm going to do in this. I know. By faith. I don't, you don't know what I'm going through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. I know how you're going to get through it. By faith. I don't care if you're on your last leg. Don't give up your faith. They can take your house. They can take your car. Don't you let the devil take your faith. We hope you enjoyed this message from Pastor Van Moody. For more information about Van Moody Ministries, please visit vanmoody.org. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed week.